Chapter 1, Section A of History of Philosophy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tier Illus. History of Philosophy by William Turner. India. The Veda, or collection of primitive religious literature of the Hindus, consists of books of sacred hymns, the Rig Veda, the Sama Veda, the Yajur Veda, and the Atarva Veda. In each it is usual to distinguish the mantras, or hymns, the Brahmanas, or ritual commentaries, and the Upanishads, or philosophical commentaries. The Vedic hymns, which are the oldest portion of the Veda, 1500 BC being the date to which conservative scholars assign the earliest of them, consist of songs of praise and prayer directed to Agni, fire, Soma, the life-awakening, intoxicating juice of the Soma plant, Indra, the god of the wars of the elements of thunder and rain, Varuna, the great, serene, all-embracing heaven, and other deities, all of whom possess more or less definitely the twofold character of gods of nature and gods of sacrifice. The gods of the Vedic hymns are styled devas, shining divinities, and asuras, lords. There is, in the poems, no evidence of a sustained attempt to trace the genealogy of these deities or to account, by means of mythological concepts, for the origin of the universe. In the Brahmanas, or ritualistic commentaries, appears the concept of a god distinct from the elemental deities, a personification of the act of sacrifice, Brahmanaspati. From this concept, the monotheistic and pantheistic speculation of the Hindus may be said to have started, although it is undeniable that even in the hymns there is expressed at least, quote, a yearning after one supreme deity who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that in them is, unquote, a yearning to which expression was given in the name Pragapati, the lord of all creatures, applied successively to Soma and other divinities. Of more importance, however, than the name Pragapati is the expression Tad Ekam, that one, which occurs in the poems as the name of the supreme being, of the first origin of all things. Its neuter form indicates, according to Max Müller, a transition from the mythological to the metaphysical stage of speculation. With regard to the word Brahman, which succeeded Tadekam as the name of the Supreme One, Max Müller refers it to the root Bri, to grow, and asserts that while the word undoubtedly meant prayer, it originally meant, quote, that which breaks forth, unquote. It, quote, was used as a name of that universal force which manifests itself in the creation of a visible universe, unquote. The word Atman, which was also the name of the deity, is referred by the same distinguished scholar to the root Atma, breath, life, soul, and is translated as self. There grew up, he says, in the hymns and the Brahmans of the Veda, the three words Pragapati, Brahman and Atman, quote, each of which by itself represents in Nus a whole philosophy or a view of the world. A belief in Pragapati as a personal god 
was the beginning of monotheistic religion in India, while the recognition of Brahman and Atman as one constituted the foundation of all monistic philosophy of that country. Unquote. In the Upanishads, or speculative commentaries, we find the first elaborate attempt made by India to formulate a speculative system of the universe and to solve, in terms of philosophy, the problems of the origin of the universe and of the nature and destiny of man. It must, however, be remembered that probably until the 4th century BC, the Upanishads, in common with other portions of the Veda, did not exist in writing, being handed down from one generation to another by oral tradition. The sutras, or aphorisms, therefore, which we possess of the six systems of Indian philosophy, do not represent the first attempt at philosophical speculation. The men whose names are associated with these sutras and are used to designate the six systems are not, in any true sense, the founders of schools of philosophy. They are merely final editors or redactors of the sutras belonging to different philosophical sects which, in the middle of a variety of theories and in a maze of speculative opinions, retained their individuality during an inconceivably long period of time. Before we take up the separate study of the six systems of philosophy, it will be necessary to outline the general teaching of the Upanishads. This teaching belongs to no school in particular, although each of the six schools is connected with it in more than one point of doctrine. The Upanishads teach 1. The identity of all being in Brahman, the source, or Atman, the self, which is identical with Brahman. 2. The existence of Maya, illusion, to which is referred everything which is not Brahman. 3. The worthlessness of all knowledge of things in their isolated existence, and the incomparable excellence of knowledge in all things in Brahman or Atman. This latter, the only true knowledge, is difficult of attainment. Still, it is attainable even in this life. It is this knowledge which constitutes the happiness of man by uniting him with Atman. Quote, in the bee's honey, one can no longer recognize the taste of the single flowers, the rivers which emanate from the one sea and again return to it, lose meanwhile their separate existences. A lump of salt dissolved in water salts the whole water and cannot be grasped again, so the true being can nowhere be grasped. It is a subtle essence which lies at the foundation of all phenomena, which are merely illusions, and is again identical with the ego. 4. The Immortality of the Soul The idea, writes Max Müller, of the soul ever coming to an end is so strange to the Indian mind that there seemed to be no necessity for anything like proofs of immortality so common in European philosophy. Equally self-evident to the Hindu mind was the samsara, or transmigration of the soul. In some systems, however, as we shall see, it is the subtle body which migrates, while during the process of migration, the soul, in the sense of self, retaining its complete identity, remains as an onlooker. 
with the idea of immortality is associated that of the eternity of karman, deed, namely the continuous working of every thought, word, and deed through all ages. If man were, once in a thousand years, to pass his silken handkerchief across the Himalayan mountains, and thus at last succeed in wiping them out, the world would indeed be older at the end of such a long space of time, but eternity and reality would still be young, and the deed of today would still exist in its results. At a late period in the development of Vedic speculation, the immensity of the duration of Brahman was given a popular expression in the doctrine of Kalpas, eons, or period of reabsorption, pralaya, and creation. 5. Mysticism and Deliverance from Bondage All the Indian systems of philosophy recognize the existence of evil and suffering and concern themselves with the problem of deliverance by means of knowledge. From the rise of Buddhism, 5th century BC, date a clearer perception of the reality of suffering and a much more emphatic assertion of the importance of freeing the soul from the bondage which suffering imposes. It is to be remarked that even in the Upanishads, existence is referred to as an evil, transmigration is represented as something to be avoided, and the final goal of human endeavor is proclaimed to be a union with Atman, in which all individual existence is merged in the general self and individual consciousness is quite extinguished. Turning now to the six great historical systems of Indian philosophy, we meet at the very outset the vexed question of chronological order. Many of the sutras, or aphorisms, in which these systems are formulated are of very great antiquity, ranking with the Upanishads in point of age. Besides, the authors of these sutras are more or less vaguely historical or altogether mythical persons. It is hopeless, therefore, to attempt to arrange the systems in chronological order. The order followed will represent, rather, the fidelity with which the systems, all of which were considered orthodox, adhere to the doctrines described as the common teaching of the Upanishads. The Vedanta, or Uttara Mimamsa, is first in importance among the systematic expositions of the philosophical teachings of the Upanishads. It is contained in sutras, composed by Badrayana, who is sometimes identified with Vyasa, the author of Mabharata, one of the great epics of India, and in commentaries composed by Samkara, about AD 900. The fundamental doctrines of the Vedanta are those of the Upanishads. The Vedanta insists on the monistic concept of reality. In one half verse, I shall tell you what has been taught in thousands of volumes. Brahman is true, the world is false, the soul is Brahman and nothing else. Unquote. Quote, there is nothing worth gaining, there is nothing worth enjoying, there is nothing worth knowing but Brahman alone, for he who knows Brahman is Brahman. Unquote. More emphatically still is the unity of all being in Brahman asserted in the famous words Tat Tvam Asi, Thou art that, which Max Muller styles, quote, the boldest and truest synthesis 
in the whole history of philosophy, unquote. But if the individual is Brahman, how are we to account for the manifold vows and for the variety of individuals in the objective world? The Vedanta Sutras answer that the view of the world as composed of manifold individuals is not knowledge but nescience, which the Vedanta philosophy aims at expelling from the mind. This nescience, avidya, is inborn in human nature, and it is only when it is expelled that the mind perceives Brahman to be the only reality. Samkara, the commentator, admits, however, that the phenomenal world, the whole objective world, is distinct from the subject, Brahman, while it is the result of nescience, is nevertheless real for all practical purposes. Moreover, it is clear that phenomena, since they are Brahman, are real. Only the multiplicity and distinction of phenomena are unreal, Maya. With regard to the origin of the universe, the universe, since it is Brahman, cannot be said to originate. And yet Brahman is commonly represented as the cause of the universe. The Hindus, however, regarded cause and effect as merely two aspects of the same reality. The threads, they observed, are the cause of the cloth. Yet what is the cloth but the aggravate of the threads? Since the finiteness and individual distinctions of things are due to nescience, it is clear that the road to true freedom, moksha, from the conditions of finite existence is the way of knowledge. The knowledge of identity of Atman with Brahman, of self with God, is true freedom and implies exemption from birth and transmigration. For when death comes, he who, although he has fulfilled all his religious duties, shall have failed to attain the highest knowledge, shall be condemned to another round of existence. The subtle body in which his soul, Atman, is clothed, shall wander through mist and cloud and darkness to the moon, and thence shall be sent back to earth. But he, who shall have attained perfect knowledge of Brahman, shall finally become identified with the Brahman, sharing in all the powers of Brahman except those of creating and ruling the universe. Partial freedom from finite conditions is, even in this life, a reward of perfect knowledge. The Vedantists, however, did not neglect the inculation of moral excellence, for knowledge, they taught, is not to be attained except through discipline. 2. The Purva Mimamsa is a system of practical philosophy and is contained in the twelve books of sutras attributed to Gaimini. Here, the central idea is that of duty, Dharma, which includes sacrificial observances and rests ultimately on the superhuman authority of the Veda. 3. The Samkhya philosophy may be described as a toning down of the extreme monism of the Vedanta. It is contained in the Samkhya Sutras or Kapila Sutras. These, at least in their present form, date from the 14th century after Christ, although the sage Kapila, to whom they are ascribed, lived certainly before the 2nd century BC. Of greater antiquity than the Sutras are the Samkhya Karikas, or memorial verses, in which the philosophy of Kapila was epitomized as early as the 1st century BC. A still older and more concise compilation of the Samkhya philosophy is found in the Tattva Samasa, which reduces all truth to 25 topics, 
This latter compendium is taken by Max Müller as the basis of his exposition to the teachings of Kapilar. The Samkhya philosophy is essentially dualistic. It does not, like the Vedanta, assume that the objective world, as distinct from Brahman, is mere illusion or ignorance. It accepts the objective world as real, and calls it Prakriti, or nature in the sense of matter containing the possibilities of all things. This principle is of itself lifeless and unconscious, and rises into life and consciousness only when contemplated by the soul, Purusha. What we call creation is, therefore, the temporary union of nature with soul, a union which arises from a lack of discrimination. How, then, is the soul to be freed from bondage of finite existence? This is, for the Samkhya, as it is for the Vedanta, the chief problem of practical philosophy. But while the Vedanta found deliverance in the recognition of the identity of the soul with Brahman, the Samkhya finds it in the recognition of the difference between the soul and nature. This recognition confers freedom, for nature, once it is recognized by the soul as distinct, disappears together with all limitation and suffering. Prakriti, once recognized by Purusha, withdraws itself so as to not to expose itself for a second time to the danger of this glance. Unquote. The assertion of the individuality of the soul, as opposed to nature, implies the multiplicity of soul. And this is another point of contrast between the Vedanta and the Samkhya. The former asserted the oneness of Atman, the latter affirms the plurality of Purushas. 4. The Yoga philosophy is contained in the sutras ascribed to Patangali, who is supposed to have lived during the 2nd century BC. In these sutras, we find practically all the metaphysical principles of the Samkhya and, in addition, certain doctrines in which the theistic element is insisted upon. Kapila had denied the possibility of proving the existence of Ishvara, the personal creator and ruler. Patangali insists on the possibility of such proof. Of course, Ishvara is not conceived as creator in our sense of the word, but merely as the highest of the Purushas, all of which may be said to create inasmuch as they, by contemplating nature, cause nature to be productive. Among the means of deliverance practiced by the yogins were the observance of certain postures, meditation, and the repetition of the sacred syllable Om. 5. The Nyaya philosophy is contained in the Nyaya Sutras. The founder of the system was Gautama, or Gautama. According to this system, the supreme resignation, or freedom, in which man's highest happiness consists, is to be attained by a knowledge of the 16 great topics of Nyaya philosophy. These topics, padarthas, are means of knowledge, objects of knowledge, doubt, purpose, instance, established truth, premises, reasoning, conclusion, argumentation, sophistry, wrangling, fallacies, quibbles, false analogies, and unfitness for arguing. Taking up now the first of these, namely the means of knowledge, we find that there are, according to the Nyaya philosophy, four kinds of right perception, sensuous, inferential, comparative, and authoritative. In order to arrive at inferential knowledge, Anuman, we must possess what is called Vyapti, or pervasion, 
that is to say, a principle expressing invariable concomitance. So, for example, if we wish to infer that this mountain is on fire, we must possess the principle that smoke is pervaded by, or invariably connected, with fire. Once in possession of this principle, we have merely to find an instance, as this mountain smokes, whence we immediately infer that it has fire. But while this is the comparatively simple means of acquiring inferential knowledge, we cannot impart this knowledge to others except by the more complicated process including 1. Assertion The mountain has fire 2. Reason Because it smokes 3. Instance Look at the kitchen fire 4. Application So too the mountain has smoke and 5. Conclusion Therefore it has fire the process, in both cases, bears a close resemblance to the syllogism of Aristotelian logic, and it is by reason of the prominence given to this means of knowledge that the Nyaya philosophy came to be regarded as a system of logic. Yet the Nyaya philosophy is far from being merely a systematic treatment of the laws of thought, for the syllogism is but one of the many means by which the soul or self, Atman, is to obtain true freedom a state in which all false knowledge and all inferior knowledge shall disappear, and all individual desire and personal love and hatred shall be extinguished. 6. The Vaisheshika philosophy, founded by Canada, is contained in the Vaisheshika Sutras, which, according to Max Muller, date from the 6th century of the Christian era, although the Vaisheshika philosophy was known in the 1st century BC. The system is closely related to the Nyaya philosophy, even its most characteristic doctrine, that of atomism, being found in undeveloped form in the philosophy of Gautama. Here, as in the Nyaya, supreme happiness is to be attained by the knowledge of certain padartas, or quasi-categories, namely, substance, quality, action, karma, genus, or community, species or particularity, inhesion or inseparability, and according to some, privation or negation. The substances are earth, water, light, air, ether, time, space, self, atman, and mind, manas. The qualities are color, taste, number, etc. These are called gunas, a word which occurs in the Upanishads and is a common term in all six systems. The four substances, earth, air, water, and light, exist either in the aggregate material state or in the state of atoms, anus. The single atom is indivisible and indestructible. Its existence is proved by the impossibility of division ad infinitum. Single atoms combine first in twos and afterwards in groups of three double atoms. It is only in such combinations that matter becomes visible and liable to destruction. To these great historical systems, which were orthodox insofar as they recognized the supreme authority of the Veda, were opposed the heterodox systems of the heretics, Nastikas, who, like the Buddhists, the Jainas, and the materialists, rejected the divine authority of the sacred writings. Buddhism, as is well known, was a distinctly religious system. It recognized suffering as the supreme reality in life, 
and devoted little or no attention to questions of philosophic interest except in their relation to problems of conduct. To cease from all wrongdoing, to get virtue, to cleanse one's own heart, this, according to the celebrated verse, is the religion of the Buddhas. The four truths on which Buddhism is built are 1. That suffering is universal. 2. That the cause of suffering is desire. 3. That the abolition of desire is the only deliverance from suffering. And 4. That the way of salvation is by means of certain practices of meditation and active discipline. In connection with the second and the third of these truths arises the problem of the meaning of karma and nirvana. In the Upanishad speculations, karman, as we have seen, meant deed, and its eternity meant the continuous working of every thought, word, and work throughout all ages. In Buddhistic speculation, the substantial permanence and identity of the soul are denied, and the only bond between the skandhas, or sets of qualities, which succeed each other in the individual body and soul, is the karma, the result of what man is and does in one existence or at one time being inevitably continued into all subsequent existences and times. The body is constantly changing, the qualities or states of the soul are constantly replaced by other qualities and states, but the result of what a man is and does remains, that alone is permanent. With regard to nirvana, Modern scholars are not agreed as to whether it meant total annihilation or a state of painlessness in which positive existence is preserved. Max Müller and Rhys Davids may be cited in favor of the latter interpretation. Rhys Davids defines nirvana as, quote, the extinction of that sinful grasping condition of mind and heart, which would otherwise, according to the mystery of karma, be the cause of renewed individual existence. Jainism, like Buddhism, was a religious system. The only important speculative doctrines in which it differs from Buddhism is that of the substantial reality and permanence of the soul. Accordingly, the Jainas thought that nirvana is the freedom of the soul from the conditions which cause finiteness, suffering, and ignorance. In this respect, they approach very closely to the speculation of the Upanishads. Persia. The religion of ancient Persia and that of ancient India sprang from the same origin, namely the ideas and usages which were shared alike by the Iranian and the Hindu branches of the original Aryan family. There are indeed traces of a civilization which existed in Persia prior to the Aryan invasion and which closely resembled the shamanism of the Akkadians of ancient Chaldea. Little, however, is known of a pre-Aryan Persia. All that can be said with certainty that the Aryan invaders found already existing in Bactria and in the neighboring regions a system of polytheism, which they replaced by a religion monotheistic in its tendency and similar in many respects to the religion of the Hindus of the Vedic period. The heaven god, known in India as Varuna, became the principal deity of the Iranians. Soma was also worshipped under the title Homa, and the distinction between Devas and Asuras, shining ones and lords, was employed in Persia as well as in India to designate two imported classes of divinities. 
Gradually, however, a change was introduced. A tendency towards dualism became more and more strongly marked. The devas came to be recognized as evil deities, and the ahuras, transliteration of asuras, came to be looked upon as divinities friendly to man. Quote, the conflict between these opposites assumed a moral form in the minds of the Iranian wanderers. The struggle between night and day, between the storm and the blue sky, of which the Vedic poets sang, was transformed into a struggle between good and evil. In place of the careless nature worshippers of the Punjab, a race of stern and earnest Puritans grew up among the deserts and rugged mountains of Ariana. Unquote. This dualistic conception of the universe, this antithesis between good and evil, was already in possession when Zoroaster, or Zarathustra, the great religious reformer, appeared about the middle of the 7th or the beginning of the 6th century BC. To him, according to the Parsi tradition, is to be ascribed the inspired authorship of a portion, at least, of the Avesta, or the sacred literature of the Persians, this collection consists of five gathas, or hymns, written in an older dialect than that of the rest of the collection, the Vandidad, or compilation of religious laws and mythical tales, and the Zend, or commentary. The first two portions constitute the Avesta proper, that is to say, law or knowledge. In addition to the Avesta Zend, there existed the Korva Avesta, or small Avesta, which was a collection of prayers. Zoroaster's share in the composition of these books is a matter which it is impossible, in the present condition of our knowledge, to determine. It is, however, beyond dispute that the sacred literature of the Persians reflects the beliefs which existed before the time of Zoroaster as well as those which Zoroaster introduced. The religious reform effected by Zoroaster consisted in reducing to two or more less vague principles the good and evil elements in the universe. For him, as for his ancestors, the world is a vast battlefield in which the forces of good and evil meet in a mighty conflict. But instead of representing the contending forces as independent principles, manifold yet capable of being classified as good and evil, he reduces all the conflicting powers to two, the good and the evil, of which the individual forces are derivatives. The good principle is called Ahura Mazda, Ormuzd or Ormazd, and the evil principle is called Anra Mainyu, Ariman. The former is conceived as light and day, the latter as darkness and night. From the former proceed the Ahuras, or living lords, who were afterwards called Yazatas, or angels, and in general, all that is good and beneficial to man. From the latter proceed the Devas, who opposed the Ahuras in the original conflict between day and night, and who became the, quote, demons, end quote, of later Mazdaism, and in general from Ariman comes all that is evil and injurious to man. It is man's duty to worship Ormazd, fire being the sacred symbol is also to be honored, by prayer, sacrifice, and the oblation of Homa, the juice of the sacred plant. It is also his duty to cultivate the soil and in other ways to promote the life and growth of the creature of Ormazd, 
to destroy the works of Ariman, to kill all venomous and noxious things, and to rid the earth of all creatures injurious to man. At the end of 12,000 years, the present cosmic period will come to an end. Omazd will finally triumph, for, although Ariman is not inferior in power to Ormazd, he fights blindly and without adequate knowledge of the results of his actions. Therefore, he and his works will come to an end, and after the final struggle, storm and night will cease, calm and sunshine will reign, and all will be absorbed in Ormazd. In this universal absorption in Ormazd, the human soul will be included. Mazdaism, the religion of Ormazd, in its later development, attached great importance to the worship of Mithra, the sun god. In this form it appeared in Rome, and was among the first of the oriental religions to gain ascendancy over the mind of the Romans. Zoroastrianism was introduced as a heresy into the Christian church by Manes, the founder of the Manichaean sect. Retrospect In the systems of thought which flourished among the great historical nations of the East, there is, as has been observed, an almost complete lack of the rational element. In some of them, however, and especially in the Indian systems, there is an abundance of speculation. Living in a country where there was practically no struggle for life, where the means of sustenance were produced without much effort on the part of the tillers of the soil, and where, for thousands of years, war was unknown, save the war of extermination waged against the original dwellers in the land, the Hindus gave themselves unreservedly to the solution of the problems, whence are we come, whereby do we live, and whither do we go? In solving these problems, however, the Hindus, while they succeeded better than other oriental peoples in separating the speculative from the mythological, failed to develop the rational or dialectical phase of thought. Their speculative systems are positive rather than argumentative. It was in Greece that philosophy as a dialectical, argumentative science found its first home. There can be no doubt that the systems which have just been sketched exercised some, if only an indefinite, influence on the speculative efforts of the first philosophers of Greece. The geographical contiguity and the commercial intercourse of the Hellenic colonies with the countries of the interior of Asia render such a supposition probable. It was not, however, until Greek philosophy had run its practically independent course of national development that the religious systems of the Orient were finally united with the great current of Greek thought, the East and the West pouring their distinctive contributions into the common stream of Greco-Oriental theosophy. End of section A